Some people sell their soul down here for whatever it is that they think the world owes them. Hopefully you don't have to do the same thing for some sports swag. With that said, today's episode is brought to you by Fanatics. Fanatics is the world's largest collection of official fan gear from all the leagues, teams, and players you love. If you like our show and you're looking to buy yourself a new jersey, sweatshirt, or even a hat, you can support us by going to podgo.co slash fanatics and get 25% off your next order. That's podgo.co slash fanatics. Fanatics. Officially licensed. Everything. Before we begin, I've been asked once again by what's left of my conscience to read the following nonpartisan disclaimer considering today's subject matter. <coughs> As we have stated in our previous episode on the 2000 election, we are not a politically based program, nor do we have any intention of ever being one. Yes, this episode deals with somebody who, for the past four years, has become a rather vocal figure in the political world. But that's the political version of the guy. We want to make clear that for this episode, we're only talking about the stuff that he did before he ultimately upended politics as we know it, or at least try our best to do that. While politics may be involved if and only if it's necessary in some entries, we're otherwise woefully and inadequately qualified to talk about any of that stuff, if we can help it. And just as we mentioned in that particular episode, there is more than our fair share of podcasts out there who are more than willing and more suited to go to great lengths to talk about political subjects than we ever will. And if you feel uncomfortable listening to this, you can always skip this episode and wait for the next one, because chances are we will never mention this subject again after today. Accordingly, we do allow comments to be made on any of our episodes on the condition that it's a civil conversation and that said conversation remains relevant to the subject at hand. Failure to do so will result and that commenter's comments being thrown out and that commenter banned from any and all future discussion on any of our episodes, whether the subject of them are politically based or not. We've already been through four years of toxic rhetoric between citizens. Let's not go making things worse. Thank you. Oh, and P.S. We should also point out that this program is being recorded 18 days before and being dropped three days before Inauguration Day. Something I wouldn't even bother to point out were it not for how on the edge the rest of the country is right now when it comes to rogue politicians trying to delay the inevitable. We already said in advance months ago that we were going to do this, and there ain't no stopping us now. We're on the move. And now... Don't fight it, folks. This is Telehell. No matter what side you find yourself on, no matter if you see him as the second coming or as a bum who just got lucky, no matter whether you see him as history's greatest hero or history's biggest villain, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that, regardless of the side that you're on, that he wouldn't be who he turned out to be were it not for television playing a pivotal role in shaping his personality. A change in leadership is required to produce a change in outcomes. He took the medium of television and played it like the fiddle made of gold that we have on display down here, using every opportunity he ever had to peddle his wares as long as a camera was pointed at his miscolored head and his dry clean only hair. And while he certainly used the camera to score himself a job that he probably never really wanted in the first place, he wouldn't have been able to do that. 
were it not for a few, shall we say, practice runs at poise. Five is my final offer. Theo, we would have taken four. Then I want a do-over. So with, as of this recording and upload, just a few days before he exits that dwelling on Pennsylvania Avenue whose paint is the shade of Whisper White, we remind our eventual former president that if he's looking for something to do to pass the time until his retirement or his inevitable incarceration, he can always go back to what he did before entering politics. Try to be convincing enough on camera to buy his way in and out of Tele-Hell. It's time now for another one of our lists. And for the purposes of this one, we have to lay down more caveats and loopholes than your standard $130,000 non-disclosure agreement. Today, we're going to be taking a look at some of the times when number 45 grabbed TV cameras by its collective pussy, and in doing so, give us a performance or two that made you wish he didn't quit his day job. Whatever that is. Of course, given the scope, and certainly the size of our subject, we need to narrow things down with the following exceptions. First, this list is composed of rumpled Finskin's TV appearances only, none of his movie cameos. So this means we rule out his appearances in Home Alone 2, the 1994 Little Rascals movie, and especially his magnum opus of a Razzie Award-winning role in the Bo Derek classic, Ghosts Can't Do It. And holy hell, I wish I was making that last one up. You were very good. You played the situation perfectly. So I beat the situation, but not you. That's what you did. We're only focusing on the TV appearances, but not just any kind of them. We're ruling out any talk show appearances, political ads, debates, press conferences, or anything else that isn't traditionally bound to the written word. We'd be here forever if we looked at all of those, and quite honestly, Pod Save America would be better at going over that aspect of things anyway. What makes it on this list will depend on the following factors. One, how unconvincing his acting skills are in a given project. Two, the size of the impact the performance wound up making in the grand scheme of things. And three, something we call the wild card, where there may or may not be some behind-the-scenes info that may or may not tip the scales in certain directions. Finally, there are moments that have been talked about by others in the past, but given the ironically limited vastness of the internet, there's a possibility that a moment or two that we really want to talk about may not have any available clips to put on, which in turn would violate the rule that we made for ourselves and that we can't cover anything that we don't have access to. One example I was hoping to cover, but now I want to get out of the way, is the quintuple ironic appearance he made on Suddenly Susan in the 90s, where Kathy Griffin, of all people, tries to pitch a magazine to him with a mock-up cover predicting him to be the next president, all the way back in 1998. Unfortunately, all that seems to exist of that ever happening is this eight-second clip. Okay, kids, make it fast. I've got a plane to catch. We've created a magazine. Mr. Trump, we give you... So, we're kind of stuck with what we've got. Then again, so were certain voters four years ago, so I guess that kind of evened things out a little bit. And really, that's it. All he has to do is act less charismatically than a performer on a public access TV station with an analog signal, and it'll count. 
With that said, these are the top eight worst acting appearances that our soon-to-be former president and future hell resident has ever embarked on. You voted for me, and you voted for me, you voted for me, you voted for me, you voted for me. Number eight. I put this first one pretty low on the list because out of all the TV appearances where he had to perform in front of an audience, this one is probably one of his least objectionable, and technically this is not really an acting appearance. But at the same time, it still comes off as off-putting to those who were unfortunate to see it in the first place. From the spectacular Trump Castle in world-famous Atlantic City, it's time to play television's non-stop game of knowledge, Trump Card. Long before The Apprentice was an orange gleam in his bloodshot eyes, the art of the dealer lent his name to another game show. Keeping in mind, he didn't host it, he didn't produce it, he didn't even create it. But supposedly, lending his name and one of his old casinos to what was otherwise an over-the-top game of bingo felt like the can't-miss syndicated hit of 1990. And to be completely fair, the game itself was okay, if not a little too familiar to game show fanatics. This program was based loosely on a classic British program called Bob's Full House, no relation to anybody in the Tanner family. The gist of which is, answer questions, fill up a bingo card, win the game, lather, rinse, repeat. That show lasted for a good five years before it came over stateside. And were it not for the fact that the angry orange lent his name and his casino to the show, it might have ran just as long in the States. So, if all he lent to the show was his name and one of his old casinos and very little else when it came to creative input, then why are we opening the list this way? It may have to do with the opening remarks that he gave on the show's premiere in September of 1990. For as we all know, the point of a first impression is to impress right out of the gate. If you don't captivate the audience right off the bat, any chance of them to stick around for the duration will be less than zero. So, how does the so-called world's greatest negotiator welcome the audience? Thank you, Jimmy. It's great to be on the same team as you. I'd also like to take this opportunity to welcome our viewers to Trump Card. It's an intelligent and challenging game, and in the great tradition of America, if you're smart and persevere, there's a good chance you'll come out on top. I certainly agree with that, Donald. I hope so. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Donald Trump... By having the enthusiasm of a can of peas... And for him to have such a stilted, unenthusiastic delivery on what was supposed to be the ushering in of a new game show pretty much felt like a harbinger of things to come. So much so that thanks to the one-two punch of him constantly being in the tabloids, as well as the show's poor time slot clearances, the show was eventually fired in 1991. No! No! Help me, Rudy Juan Giuliani! You're my only hope! May the fraud be with you! Always. Number seven. Before we talk about the poor little rich boy some more, let's talk about somebody who's actually made something of his career over the years. Moon over Parma, bring my love to me tonight. Guide her to Eastlake, underneath your silvery light. Long before he took the reins of The Price is Right, Drew Carey was a successful comedian with an equally successful TV series. During the show's second season finale, Drew and his friends embark on a spontaneous road trip from their hometown of Cleveland to New York City to catch their beloved and soon-to-be-renamed baseball team take on the New York Yankees. The main story is that their ice cream truck full of beer, which makes a lot more sense in context, 
breaks down in the middle of rush hour. And just who do they try to get to help them out of it? Wow, hot one, isn't it? Let me have a nutty buddy. Oh my God, you're Donald Trump. Look at this right here on the street. It's Donald Trump. <laughs> kind of weird, isn't it? Sort of like I'm human. Let me have a nutty buddy for you. Seen in his 1997 rookie hairpiece, the three-time married man barely gives a damn about the so-called common man, but not half as much as he doesn't give a damn on just how stiff and wooden his line delivery is, which, spoiler alert, is going to be a bit of a running theme for the rest of this list. Oh, we don't have any ice cream. Isn't this an ice cream truck? Uh-huh. So, what's in the back of your truck? Beer. Beer in the back of an ice cream truck? What are you, morons? No, we're from Cleveland. Ah, you're from Cleveland. Even more ironic is this final exchange near the end of the appearance. Give this to the guy at the gate. He'll take you to my box seats. Use them, enjoy them, and welcome to New York. We'll probably still be here. We'll have a beer later. Which happens to be ironic due to the fact that he, allegedly, never drank a day in his life. Possibly because he saw what booze and drugs did to one of his brothers, but let's not dig too much into his personal history. Various biographers and the tabloids can do that on their own. This appearance may have been Colonel Kafefe's attempt to be more relatable to average Joes, but those who have read about him or saw various pieces of so-called fake news over the years know better. Oh, and also in this clip, he's apparently a fan of the special edition of Star Wars. I'm gonna go see the uh, Star Wars trilogy. That alone should tell you something's not right. Number six. Contrary to popular belief, Vladimir Putin's wannabe best friend had his small hands in NBC's business for a lot longer than we realize, whether it was for TV appearances, business dealings, or otherwise. And for better or worse, he did have a bit of appeal to certain demographics. But what about the young folks out there who had yet to be swayed by what everybody else wants to think? Would they feel the same way? Well, my apologies in advance for what I'm about to do. Now, this is a story all about how a TV show got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there to tell you how the Fresh Prince met a clown with bad hair. Thanks for indulging me, and I promise I will never rap again. Just, just play the clip. Sir, it is my esteemed pleasure to introduce Mr. and Mrs. Donald Trump. Just Jeffrey the Butler's introduction of Mr. President and his second wife alone is enough to make your skin crawl. And at the same time, it kind of makes me wonder how much booze he had to drink after being forced to deliver that much of a flowery introduction. But that's not what this is about. This is about the time when the Banks family faced the option of selling their palatial Bel Air estate to the highest bidder for some reason. But young Ashley is the sole holdout due to not wanting to move. Before we go too far, I've got something to tell you. Excuse me, but I've got something to tell you first. Thank you for ruining my life! Ashley! While on the surface, this had all the earmarks of a harmless cameo, I can only imagine what Will Smith, the rest of the cast, and even the writer of the episode must have been thinking when this wound up taking place. And thankfully for the internet being a never-ending bastion of archival footage, we have a method to the madness. According to an interview with the podcast So Fresh So Prince, episode writer Mike Socio stated that part of the reason he appeared in the episode at all was because wife number two was looking to start an acting career, which 
I guess, would count as an act of nobility, or it would have, had she been given the chance to deliver more than one line. What did you do? Everybody's always blaming me for everything. Socio went on to mention how, when the president-to-be entered the set, he acted like he owned the place, up to and including the cast. And considering how diverse that cast was, I gotta say, that's a pretty bold statement for Socio to make, for obvious reasons. The appearance was a little over two minutes. And even then, the consumer of hamburgers couldn't act his way out of a paper bag full of that. Let's go down the street. I brought cash. It's quicker. <laughs> nice meeting you all. It's just as well. It's too much of a fixer-upper. <laughs> a performance that probably let Will Smith think to himself... Number five. For these next few entries, I need to dust off an old piece of imaging. Let me see if I can find it. There we go. Okay, play it. Commercials of the Damned. If and when we ever do bring this segment back on a full-time basis, some things that we promised ourselves was that we would only poke fun at the advertisement itself and not the product. Or we can make fun of the product all we want if the brand happens to no longer exist. Since this particular product still exists, however, this will be a good chance to shake off some of the rust off of our commercial criticism while towing the line at the same time. With that said, in 1995, Pizza Hut was looking for a way to introduce the world to pizza that you would intentionally eat backwards due to the fact that a ring of cheese was baked into the crust. The ad firm that Pizza Hut hired to send out that message had a simple idea. Show people from all walks of life doing the wrong things since it was conventional wisdom that eating pizza backwards was the wrong thing to do. Among those who participated in the campaign was a millionaire and his wife. His first ex-wife, no less. You really think this is the right thing for us to be doing, Ivana? What do people think? Let them talk. Ivana, 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 Ivana. It's wrong, isn't it? But it feels so right. Then it's a deal? Yes, we eat our pizza the wrong way. Crust first. Introducing stuffed crust pizza from Pizza Hut with a ring of The less said about these two and their long-running divorce story in the 90s, the better. But sure enough, right in the middle of it, Pizza Hut somehow convinced the two people in this world who probably couldn't stand each other the most at that time to do this commercial. And this commercial is, quite honestly, one of the funniest commercials I've ever seen in my life. I'm not joking. I'm not even saying any of this to appeal to an audience of deplorables, because I'm already in hell. What the hell else do I have to lose? In fact, this commercial almost made the guy even one-tenth likable, because, hell forbid, the guy actually manages to poke fun at himself for once in his gilded life. And even more so, his acting in this is nearly plausible. There are other podcasts out there that go into greater detail as to how this commercial not only turned things around for Pizza Hut's sales, but actually gave the Korean dictator enthusiast some positive feedback during one of the many times in his life where he seemed his most loathsome. With all of that said, there was another occasion where he peddled pizza, and as is the case with most sequels, it just couldn't live up to the original. You give me those three pizzas, only I'll give you just $5 a piece. The real number five on this list is a commercial for Domino's Pizza from 2005. If 
you thought their time with Bad Andy tanked their sales in the early 2000s, this 2005 commercial must have driven those same sales to Earth's core. This spot took place around the time where a certain NBC reality show was just about the only thing worth watching at the network at that time. But I'll go into greater detail on more of that show's unfortunate fringe benefits down the line. In the meantime, the show became so popular that advertisers were only too eager to ride a gold-plated gravy train. Too bad they were blindsided by his lack of acting ability. And at the same time, the commercial just goes to show how much of a shark he was when it came to negotiation. Mr. Trump, here you go, uh, three medium pizzas, five dollars each. Tell you what, I'll counter that offer with an even better one. Here's the deal. You give me those three pizzas, only I'll give you just five dollars a piece. Okay. Still got it, Donald. Still got it. Obviously, there's a stark difference between this commercial and the one that he did for Pizza Hut. For starters, he actually acted like he gave a quasi-damn for Pizza Hut. But here, we begin with an obvious decline in production value. The whole thing looked like it took the exact 30 seconds the commercial ran in order to film it. Like he had better things to do than talk about pizza that was once endorsed by a sock puppet and a creature in a red rabbit-eared gimp suit. And of course, say it with me now... The guy can't act. I know most businessmen don't really have acting on their resume in the first place, but by this point in his legacy, he's already made cameos in several dozen movies, TV shows, and commercials, and he's still reading his lines like he has tissues in his mouth Brando style. That's a man that doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. This commercial may seem like a waste of time, but it ultimately didn't hurt Domino's in the long run. And if you hear our mini-sode on Bad Andy, you'll hear more about their turnaround. On that note, we've now reached the halfway point in saluting the recipient of his father's million-dollar small loan. We'll get to the final four... After the break. And as we go to break, here's a look at some dishonorable mentions that, while they were arguably better performances in comparison, still lent itself to more awkwardness than being in the same room at the same time as both your current and your former wives. Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Donald Trump, we're all cut from the same cloth, and that cloth is very, very large. It's not too big, is it? No. Turn left on Trump Avenue. Ever wonder why New Yorkers have such big mouths? Go big or go home. Because we eat big pizza, like the big New Yorker from Pizza Hut. 16 inches of real New York pizza dripping with cheese at a very un-New York price. $9.99. They've got to be losing money on that. I put together some really impressive deals. But this thing you've pulled off, it's amazing. A big and tasty for just a dollar? How do you do it? What's your secret? You're a man of few words. I like that. Hi, I'm Donald Trump to talk to you about the remarkable convenience of the Visa check card. Everyone knows the Visa check card's directly connected to the money in your checking account. Oops. But if your card's lost or stolen, did you know you're not liable for fraudulent purchases? Got it. And you'll get every single cent of that money back. Yes, not. Visa, it's everywhere you want to be. And I thought he was doing so well. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives. Dave's Archives is the premier spot on YouTube where you can get your vintage TV fix, including old commercials and original shows covering classic TV and other TV-related pop culture. Here's just a small taste of what they have in store for you.
to check out the rest of it, go to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can visit them on Facebook. Again, search Dave's Archives. And now, back to my punishment for the week. Screw, screw, screw your vote. Ignore COVID-19. I need therapy, therapy, Number four. While we did promise ourselves that we wouldn't make fun of a product itself and only focus on the commercial in question, it's with great relief that we can tell you that this next product no longer exists. Which is just as well, because the way Commandant Chloroquine tried to sell us this product was so unconvincing that it wouldn't surprise me if there was an influx of people looking to convert to becoming vegans after watching it. When it comes to great steaks, I've just raised the steaks. The Sharper Image is one of my favorite stores with fantastic products of all kinds. That's why I'm thrilled they agree with me. Trump steaks are the world's greatest steaks, and I mean that in every sense of the word. You know that scene in Rocky II where, after finding his initial success, Sly Stallone does a series of commercials with varying levels of difficulty reading? In the morning, I splash it on. And it makes me smeal mainly. Smeal mainly? Uh, cut. Well, try to picture that same guy, only older, heavier, and more prone to blows to the head. And you pretty much got what happened here. Trump steaks are five-star gourmet, quality that belong in a very, very select category of restaurant, and are certified Angus Beef Prime. There's nothing better than that. I mean, one has to to be that unconvincing when it comes to selling something with one's name on it. For those who weren't blessed to know what this was, these quote-unquote steaks were pretty much a rip-off of Omaha steaks in that they were vacuum-sealed meats that were placed in a fancy box and then overpriced beyond recognition. But unlike Omaha steaks, Mr. Razzie Award winner's meat was only on shelves for a three-month trial period. And to further punctuate just how much of a misfire the product turned out to be, notable technological impulse buying hub The Sharper Image was the only retailer to sell them. And The Sharper Image is the only store where you can buy them. The only retailer to sell them. I will say that again. The Sharper Image was the only retailer to sell these steaks. Because when you think of stores that would sell battery-powered digital clocks that could massage you and say good morning in about 39 languages, the next immediate thought is meat. Finally, some damn meat! Load the meat! Come on! Load the meat! Sorry, just trying to lighten the mood. Partly because the rest of this list is going to be as uncomfortable as inspecting the contestants at a Miss USA pageant. Point is... If even the person whose name is on the package can't even give half a damn about what it is he's trying to sell, what chance does his meat, his casinos, his airline, his university, his vodka, his spring water, or his brand of ice have of actually being successful? Spoiler alert, they don't. If you like your steak, you'll absolutely love Trump steaks. Treat yourself to the very, very best life has to offer. And as a gift... Trump steaks are the best you can give. One bite and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And believe me, I understand steaks. It's my favorite food. And these are the best. Ask Clown Racist, sing this song. Kurita, Kurita. Ask Clown Fascist, loves Kim Jong. I will not go away. Number three. As we said, we're judging these moments either on how poorly he acted or how much of an impact the clip would wind up having in retrospect or a completely different outside factor altogether. 
We want to reiterate that because in this next clip, he only had 12 seconds worth of dialogue within 45 seconds of camera time. With that being said, one of the main perpetrators of exploiting our Commander and Tweed's success on TV in the early 21st century may very well go down in history as one of the TV industry's greatest villains. Whereas Fred Silverman is considered the patron saint of telehell because, in spite of his notorious failings, he still did a lot to change television for the greater good, which is something that I wish I could say the same for one of his NBC successors. One, Mr. Jeff Zucker. And while we do promise to showcase more of the rap that he left in his wake at NBC somewhere down the line, let's focus on one tragedy at a time. Otherwise, we're going to be here all day. When Captain Comover's fluke of a reality TV show wound up becoming one of the sole bright spots in NBC's lineup of the mid-2000s, the Peacock stopped at nothing to milk the success of that show drier than a steak sold at the sharper image. Naturally, this meant an increase in cameos on the very network he was making it big, where... Again, he essentially had to play himself. But since it's acting that matters here, there was one particular moment during the height of that show that just didn't feel right. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Like we said, he only had about 12 seconds worth of dialogue out of the 45 seconds of screen time when he made his appearance on Days of Our Lives in 2005. And normally, because of how brief his appearance was, you would expect this to be a lot lower on the list. Or at least it would have been, were it not for two things that fall under our wildcard standards. First, how another performer in his scene happened to perform right in front of him. Consider me for a place in your organization, whatever that might be. I think you'll find that I'm a very willing employee working under you. I think could be mutually beneficial. Well, you know, that's an interesting proposition, Mrs. Walker. I'll get back to you. Really? Yeah, really. No. Really? No. <sighs> the actress who found herself saying such things was one Miss Ariane Zucker. No relation to Jeff. But that's second to the fact that this actress happened to be the one where you-know-who would meet up with a fistful of Tic Tacs when you-know-what wound up happening. I gotta use some Tic Tacs just in case they start kissing her. Hey, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the <laughs> Those crook comments made moments before meeting her. Hello, how are you? Hi. Trump, how nice are seeing you? you. Terrific. Nice to meet you. And before you call us out on our own rules, all the Pussygate stuff happened in 2005, 11 years before he was running for president. So technically, this doesn't count as anything political. Hell, we almost kind of have to mention it anyway, considering that the event is intrinsically tied not just to the Days of Our Lives clip, but also to Ariane's eventual thoughts on both moments during a 2016 interview with the Today Show. Do you find those to be offensive comments? They are offensive comments for, for women, period, yes. Yes, they are. You weren't shocked? I, not with that type of personality, it wasn't shocked. Which is probably why it doesn't mean a lot to me. Do you accept his apology? That was an interesting, interesting apology. <laughs> I want to teach my daughter that if she ever gets put in a situation like mommy is right now, that she will hold her head high as well. And if she's learned anything from it, how can she share this with other women or young girls or whoever is around her, young boys even? I think young men can learn from this, of how not to be 
in front of women um, or when they're speaking about women. And for that, you've got to give her her props. Anybody who could survive 45 seconds in the same room with him and say what was written for her on the show deserves all the empowerment she wants. Still, though, the short clip of the show itself shouldn't have had as much subcontext as it wound up having 11 years after the fact. And yet, there it is. Forever connected. Well, you know, that's an interesting proposition, Mrs. Walker. I'll get back to you. Really? Yeah, really. When hair dye leaks from Rudy's head, throw out all the votes. Depressed and covered in spray tan, throw out all the votes. Number two. Way back in season one of Telehealth, we glossed over a couple of things that we promised ourselves we would eventually go over, but not necessarily things that would cause our trademark bad lightning to strike. These were more moments that, although they were a little tough to sit through, they might have been a little too minute to devote an entire episode towards. One of those things we glossed over were a series of moments at the Primetime Emmy Awards over the years that either made you want to change the channel, or worse, throw the TV out the window SCTV style. In this case, not only should you be throwing out your TV, but also the sound system that's attached to it, just to make sure that you cover the bases. Green Acres is the place to be, farm living is the life for me, land now that you hear it, you can't unhear it. But now that you are hearing it, you're probably wondering if God and Satan made a bet. And if so, who exactly was the winner? But more importantly, you're probably wondering just how the hell Hair Club for Men's millionth customer wound up doing this in the first place. Well, during the 2005 Emmy Awards, that evening's host, Ellen DeGeneres, slowed down the proceedings by making the following announcement. Here to sing the theme from Green Acres, please welcome Donald Trump and Will and Grace's Karen Walker. It was reported that during the ceremony, classic TV theme songs would be performed by the likes of Kristen Bell, a woman who has reasonable singing experience, Macy Gray, another woman with reasonable singing experience, even William Shatner would be paired up with an opera singer, which I guess even things out there. Meanwhile, Megan Mullally, who has performed on Broadway for many years before Will and Grace was ever a thing, had the misfortune of drawing the short straw and performing the theme from Green Acres opposite NBC's newfound meal ticket. And were this a sane world? The moment itself wouldn't even be making this list at all, because, cringeworthy as it was to hear him sing, this was also another one of those rare times when he was able to cut loose a little bit and even be the butt of a joke that he himself can get behind. But as it turned out, there was much more to this than simply warbling a theme song. Because American Idol was in the early years of its phenomenability across America, the Emmys felt... Gee, wouldn't it be cool if we did something where the people at home watching could vote on things? Sure enough, millions of people watching voted for their favorite performance that night. And in spite of actual talent being in the room, it wasn't even close. Karen Walker and Richie Rich on Prednisone won the audience's approval. In recent years on various talk show appearances, however, Mullally's regret on doing the bit ranged appropriately. 
from back when he was a humble presidential candidate. At the time, he was just like the kooky guy from The Apprentice. Yes. And he was like, you're fired. And everybody was like, oh, he's funny. So, um, <laughs> so shortly after, he got the job. There is you with the leader of the free world uh, doing Green Acres. Yes. See this photo? Yeah. Otherwise known as my suicide note. Suffice to say, the fact that he was able to win over a massive audience by virtue of voting only meant one thing. The craving for more power and more audience approval began to solidify. And there was really only one other way to put the nail in that coffin. Dead people vote, dead people vote, I saw them vote, they are zombies. Number and then they eat one. The they can't fight in the state of Maine, it makes sense if you start cocaine, dead people vote. Well, ladies and gentlemen, demons, for the first time ever in telehell, we've got a tie. Or at least technically speaking, we do. Considering that we're actually going to be looking at two episodes from one television program. And truth be told, it was hard to decide which of these two appearances were the greater of both evils. But at the end of the day, it was virtually impossible to decide which of the two deserved it more for several simple reasons. But the chief of which is... He sucks as an actor! It's great to be here at Saturday Night Live, but I'll be completely honest. It's even better for Saturday Night Live that I'm here. There was never, not even for one second, any doubt in my mind as to what would make it to the top of the bottom of the barrel. Both of his appearances on Saturday Night Live may as well be placed inside a lead-line container and labeled Biohazard. The easy answer to say that his 2015 appearance was especially bad because he recently announced that he was running for public office, versus his 2004 appearance to shill for The Apprentice on NBC. But no matter what it was he was there to promote, the universal fact remained that his presence there was as much a rating stunt to the nth degree as it was incredibly uncomfortable for both the cast and the viewers of each era to endure. Let's begin with his 2004 appearance, one that, to another small sliver of credit I'll allow here, was bad not just because of his lack of acting and dancing ability, but this also took place in the middle of one of SNL's more awkward seasons. The show was still reeling from the departures of Will Ferrell, Tracy Morgan, and, to a lesser extent, Chris Kattan. Not to mention just how close to the brink NBC was in the ratings, with Friends and Frasier about to sign off that season. So naturally, the network, once again under the Machiavellian tutelage of Jeff Zucker, decided to milk their flash-in-the-pan hit even drier. And... What exactly were the fruits of that labor? Join me at Donald Trump's House of Wings. You know our wings will make you happy. That clip, by the way, is probably the only known footage of his 2004 appearance that we could obtain. Well, that and this as well. Donald, hey, it's me, Star Jones. Hey, Star, what's up? You know, I'm in the middle of a show right now. Well, listen, I just wanted you to know that I know who won The Apprentice. Believe me, 
You can't believe a word Omarosa says. You just can't. The rest of the episode seems to have been scrubbed off the internet at Major Regeneron's request to NBC while running for office, what seems like an eternity ago. Because Satan forbid, him in a farmer's outfit? Okay. Him poking fun at a messy divorce while selling pizza? Okay. But him in an all-yellow suit doing his best Elaine Bennis dancing impression while SNL cast members dance comparatively better than him while wearing chicken outfits? That's the thing that could derail his political future? Am I saying I'm a chicken wing expert? No. But I can tell you this. The wing is hands down the best part of the chicken. Better than the head, better than the torso, better than the back. And at Donald Trump's House of Wings, you can get them with five different levels of hotness. Regular, hot, three-alarm, suicidal, and hell-spawn. Suffice to say, the experience left people at SNL feeling dejected. He was everything you would think. He didn't have any sense of humor, but if things worked, he liked them. And even then, it was when the audience responded. It was only, it's the way, it's the same way he is in rallies now. You know, he, he keeps saying, build the wall because it worked. He's like, there's sometimes you have a host where a sketch bombs, but they love it. It's so great. Now it's not him. But the Russian puppet's 2015 appearance was far more flagrant than that of a ratings grab. Not just TV ratings, but approval ratings in the court of public opinion on his quest to become the next president of these United States. It's wonderful to be here. I will tell you, this is going to be something special. Many of the greats have hosted, as you know, this show. A lot of people are saying, Donald, you're the most amazing guy. You're brilliant. You're handsome. You're rich. You have everything going. The world is waiting for you to be president. So why are you hosting Saturday Night Live? Why? And the answer is, I have really nothing better to do. In spite of all kinds of protests outside of NBC studios in New York, the ploy turned out to be more counterproductive than advertised, with more than double the ratings than what a show pulls in on a normal night in recent years. A boost that had some, up to and including Lorne Michaels, wondering if such a gambit was worth it in both the short and the long term if it only meant amplifying his platform and his base of increasingly rabid followers. Trump's a racist! It's Larry David. What are you doing, Larry? I heard if I yelled that, they'd give me $5,000. On the surface, considering how little he appeared on the show, 18 minutes on camera, in fact, it really should not have been that big of a deal. And yet, as much as I don't want to believe it, this episode was a turning point. For better or far, far worse. Not just for his campaign, but for the fact that SNL inevitably had to feel something for what they thought was opening up Pandora's box, which would probably explain all the liberal-leaning sketches that they wound up pumping out afterwards. It almost felt like their way of getting on their knees and begging the viewers for their forgiveness. But alas, the damage was done. It was the highest-rated show of the 2015-2016 television season and they pretty much sold their soul in order to get it. Sure, if you take away the underlying tone of the whole thing, the episode was pretty much average. But average at a price. Considering the five years of penance cures that the show has tried to accomplish since that appearance, up to and including four years of Alec Baldwin sticking it to him until the audience was sick of it, to this seemingly nonchalant piece of subtlety. Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift. 
Speaking as a life and death-long SNL fan, the show continues to realize what a horrible, horrible mistake it made in 2015. And yet, the show will never feel 100% clean ever again, no matter how hard it tries. I'm not giving up, and neither should you. And live from New York, it's Saturday night! But lousy acting and audience pandering is not the reason why I have these two moments here at number one. Nor is it why we have this list to begin with. All of these appearances on this list are the textbook definition of how television can not only be used as a tool, but it can also be used as a weapon. If the wrong thing is sent out for millions to see, one of two things could happen. Either people will wind up leeching themselves onto that message and take it as the gospel truth, or people would be wise enough to change the channel so they could avoid being corrupted by that message even more so when the highest office in the land is up for grabs. Fortunately, for the sake of ebb and flow, there's only so much of one thing that human beings can take over a period of time, whether it be instantaneous or, in this guy's case, a long, slow, decades-long slog in front of a TV camera, all in the hopes of trying to win over any kind of audience. Because, hell forbid, he was never hugged growing up. And yet, at the same time, you almost, kinda, sorta have to admire the man for using the medium of television in a way that not even Chauncey Gardner could have envisioned. And if you don't know who that is, I suggest watching more Peter Sellers movies. Point is, he treated the TV camera like it was an American flag destined to be groped. He made himself present every time the lights were on. But what he lacked in charisma, he more than made up for that in carving out an inexplicable mystique not just for himself, but for his brand that somehow, somehow, over 75 million people keep managing to fall for. And in spite of everything that he's put us through, political or otherwise, he knew how to play the game and play half the country for fools at the same time. All thanks... I think, to television, even if it meant bending the rules a little bit. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Now that we got all of these appearances out of the way, only one question remains. Where does this emperor without clothes reign over telehell? Suffice to say, these nine circles are gonna be... Huge! Limbo! Lust! Gluttony! Greed! Wrath! Heresy! Violence! Fraud! Treachery! Each and every one of these appearances is not unlike the man himself. Shameless, pandering, devoid of any sense of being humble, and only looking out for number one. Each of these appearances and all the other ones we didn't even cover embolden the man's constant lusting and gluttonous desires for attention and to be in front of the camera. To say nothing of how said lustful and gluttonous desires are flagrant attempts for him to boost his own ego, and perhaps even pocket a little extra coin in the process. After all, you can't be a so-called billionaire without being even the slightest bit greedy. All of which wound up scoring him the highest job in the free world in the longest long con known to mankind. A job which, for the past four years, only resulted in continuous wrath on all sides of the aisle, across the nation, and around the world. 
in anger that has also resulted in sporadic cases of violence right in our own backyard, by the way. And all because the person that people voted to be put in charge of everything managed to get by thanks to his constant fraud tactics. And manipulating his fellow politicians to cower to his will thanks to some misguided treachery. Thus resulting in an upheaval of political norms that some would have once called sacrosanct. One might even say that his actions of the past four years is considered heresy to all these truths we see as self-evident. And of course... Once he sets foot outside of Pennsylvania Avenue, it'll only be a matter of time until we hear that his days as a free man will be in limbo. Of course, I... What the hell? Uh, hold on a second. I, we haven't heard this sound before. What does this mean? Does this... Does this mean... I did it! I did it! I found the one thing on television that checks off all nine circles of telehell! I'm free! I'm free! I'm... Oh, are you kidding me? This better be good. I'm about to pack my bags. Just yet. Did you really think the boss would be that stupid? Hey, a deal's a deal. If I were to check off all nine circles of telehell, I would get my soul back and return to the real world. I read all of that in the handbook and everything. I'm done. So be sure to tell the big guy that I'm about to escape hell in a very legal and binding way. Are you? Are you really? Of course I am. Why else would the bells go off? Because you fell for the oldest trick in the book. Literally, in that handbook we gave you when you first got here. Which also happens to be the oldest book in existence. But, you know, I too can digress. What are you talking about? Check the back cover. You see those tiny little dots in gold ink under the copyright mark? Yeah, what about it? Well, now, hell wouldn't be hell without, you know, a little fine print. What the... Hold on. Let's see here. Legal notice to Telehell occupant. Regarding judgment in the nine circles of Telehell, only television programs are eligible in judgment. Individual persons being judged will not be valid, as this is something that is already done in regular hell. This includes former presidents of the United States and other public figures either living or dead, as they can be admitted retroactively in the underworld if new damning information can be found out about them after their passings. Rule codified and validated January 1st dawn of time. In other words, everything you just said in your wrap-up, though rightfully full of anger, is considered null and void. And besides, this was one of your countdowns. Don't you usually put the nine circles aside for them? Well, pending unforeseen circumstances as of this recording and upload, the guy isn't going to be president anymore, so I figure I may never get the chance to do this again. Be that as it may, sorry, honey, but you're still stuck here. Well, don't I at least get anything for pointing out all that other stuff anyway? Oh, don't worry. The boss actually thanks you for cutting out the middleman on that one. 
He's been working on building a presidential suite exclusively for you-know-who. And what you did actually just helped speed up the construction process. He'll be sure to acknowledge that when you get to your next progress evaluation. However, you still tried to outsmart him in trying to make your escape whether you realized it or not. So, uh, by our rules, there still needs to be a penalty involved to even things out. Penalty? What could be worse than being in hell? You're about to find out. As always, good luck, honey. And, uh... Try not to pull that stunt ever again, unless it's an actual TV show. (sighs) I had a feeling that this was too good to be true. Just like the man himself. Well, as long as whatever's on this tape isn't anything Brady Bunch related, I'm sure I can handle whatever this penalty is. All right, what you got for me? So you're inbred. Excuse me? You know, where your mom's your dad and your dad's your brother. Next time on Telehell, it's shows like this one that make me grateful that noise-canceling headphones were ever invented. For a rich kid like Polly Sherman, uh, this party's gonna, gonna be kicking Every day was a holiday. Miss Delaware. Mm, Delaware next to nothing. Until then. If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. The part of the devil's secretary was played by Joan Bishop. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Lipsit. Not unlike certain viruses, Telehell is everywhere now. In addition to Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, we can also be heard on Google Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app. Of course, we can also be heard in a number of other places just by Googling Telehell. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and follow our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. Podcast.